Welcome to ePod, a podcast from the UW-Madison's College of Engineering's Office of Interdisciplinary Professional Programs. These podcasts are focused on big ideas in engineering and the people behind them. My name is Justin Kyle Bush, and I am your host. On today's episode, Susan Ottman talks with Craig Lee, who is the Principal Group Engineering Manager with Microsoft in Redmond, Washington. Craig completed his Master's of Engineering and Engineering Management right here at UW-Madison, and he will be providing insights into his learnings from the Technical Project Management course, his program, and his experience as a leader at Microsoft. Take it away, Susan. To start the discussion, Craig, please share a bit about your career. Well, first of all, thank you very much, Susan, for having me today. It's exciting to have this opportunity. So I, I have kind of a roundabout path that I took into the, the role that I have today. Most, most students or most uh, uh, colleagues of mine you know, went through the typical computer science degree and, and internships and, and then into the industry. But, uh, you know, I started as a really young age with, you know, fascinated with computers, had a, our first, my first computer at age 12 and, um, you know, just spent a lot of time in early years in high school, uh, you know, just really kind of fascinated with that whole PC boom that happened in the, in the eighties. But in the, in the nineties, I, decided that for some reason I was going to be a lawyer and, and kind of took the, got a BA in political science and it was going that route, but um, found myself in, in Seattle in the mid nineties and took some side jobs and, and essentially taught myself programming um, and software engineering and, and started getting consulting jobs and, and other uh, gigs that then turned into actually full-time software engineering work um, and worked through that. Uh, different small companies in the in the Seattle area, and then finally made my big transition to Microsoft in 2006. And that was just a lot of you know the result of a lot of a lot of reading and and on the job training and and you know hard work and self teaching. Um, but since then, you know, it's been a great experience uh, at Microsoft. You know, it's such a large company, and there's such a variety of products and services that are offered that I've, I feel like even in the almost 15 years I've been there, I've, it's been almost four or five different, you know, distinct experiences from developer tools to, you know, working in, in, on the Outlook product, uh, spent some time working on the machine learning tooling and platforms, um, in dynamics. And then now I'm in uh, a data governance team working on internal and external privacy operations and, and products. Um, and in the, in the transition to Microsoft, I, I also started off as an individual contributor. Um, I had some management experience and prior to that company, uh, but then throughout the, my career at Microsoft, it's been a steady growth from, um, you know, from the, in, initially the individual contributor to small team lead to engineering manager. And then I think to a, large degree based on my experience with the MEM program uh, over the last year have moved into a manager manager role. Um, and that's currently where I 
I am today and enjoying that, um, these great experiences and challenges. Wow, what a fascinating career and you've got a long way to go from here. Today's podcast is focused on technical project management and its impact on your ability to think strategically with executing projects. What were your biggest takeaways learned from this course that you were able to apply at Microsoft? So one of the one of the themes that I saw recurring not only in TPM but also throughout um, the MEM classes is that how you start is really almost the important part of any endeavor or project. Um, the very specifically um, over the last two or three teams that I've been on, I've actually used the project overview statement template. Um, and it's amazingly clarifying to, to take that template, work through all of the sections, think about the problem and the customers and the goals and the metrics and, uh, and in all of those aspects of the project, um, because it just brings an incredible amount of clarity. I, I have a, I've had a number of people as, as we go through this process go, wow, this is, this is great. I can't believe all this clarity we're getting, you know, from, from actually going through this exercise. So, um, and I just talk all the time with my team about how important it is to have a clear scope and priorities. And we, we invest a lot of time in those activities and those discussions, because I think it, having that, you know, starting strong is so important to being successful. Because if you start off, uh, it's really hard to recover. I think another, um, another art, you know, with, with this recent time with COVID, you know, the, the articles and slides on B teams that we talk about in TPM, I've just been going back to those quite frequently and like picking up different aspects of it. And um, one thing that I that I went back to fairly early and 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 really believe in strongly it was the discussion about the benefits of face to face meetings, um, and then how much even even Zoom and Teams these these technologies don't fully replicate that experience. And so we've one thing I set up very early in, in COVID was a kind of a daily virtual water cooler meeting where we can just get together 15, 20 minutes and just talk about, you know, the only rule is don't talk about work. Uh, but then I've also set up what, what I called social distant lunches where everybody brings a long chair in their lunch and we gather on campus and just sit in a big circle and, and, you know, ear lunch and talk. And it's great to see people and, you know, in, in real space. Um, and you can have side conversations and people can get to know each other in just ways that you just can't, you know, in a large uh, Zoom meeting. So I think, you know, those two have definitely been um, super critical. But one thing that I also have pulled out of it was the concept of reliable promises. Um, I think in the, in the past, the planning that I've done at Microsoft there's just, there's a, there's a variety of things that we talk about. And if we really dig into it, different parts of our plan have, have different weight to them. Some things we, we really need to get done. There is either strong dependencies or it's super critical for the business or the customers. And some items are more kind of nice to have or wishful thinking. Um, but we bundle all these things together in a plan. And then it's, you, you're almost guaranteed now for the plan to fail because you've got all this mix of things. And so I've started dividing our planning into 
a core aspect of what the team is going to actually promise to deliver. And we go a much deeper level of investigation and planning in order to come to that decision. And then there are aspects of the plan that aren't, you know, aren't to that level. Um, and we, we have them in there because we want to try to get them done. They're important, but they're not, they don't rise to that level. And I think that's really brought, brought a lot of clarity, especially to my management when they look at the plans and they can really understand, okay, what are you really committing to versus what are you hoping to get done or, or thinking that you can get done based on some initial costing. And then the, the final piece is, um, you know, the discussions on risks and uncertainties, I think is just super critical. Uh, one of the things that I talk about when, whenever a new engineer, you know, we hire a lot of engineers right out of, right out of college and, and I try to make sure that I spend time drilling this into their brains that, you know, you have to understand where, you know, when you put together any kind of plan, either for your day or for the week, for the month, you know, where are those risks and uncertainties? Because there's going to be aspects of what you're trying to accomplish that you've done before. And maybe there, you know, you, you can completely estimate them to a high degree of, of confidence, but there's going to be items of that work that, you know, you maybe you've never done and um, you have to do the work, either prototyping or investigation or next level of costing to really identify, manage and mitigate those items. Um, and if you're not doing that, then any plan you build is gonna be, you know, kind of a toss up. Uh, so I think I, I find myself going back to like really key important parts um, from this class. And I think that it's, it just it forms this incredible foundation of knowledge and, and um, awareness for, for any types of projects. Thank you. You've picked some of the my favorite parts of the class, especially reliable promising. I use that tool a lot. Yeah. You talk about new engineers joining your team. What about those who have become new technical project managers? What advice would you give them, suggestions or tips for someone who's new at leading projects? I think the, 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 key, the key thing I would say is back to um, the earlier discussion to just really make sure that you start strong. Um, and I think it's comes from a couple, I think we'll talk about three different angles on this one. One is, you know, understand your business and the goals of your management to really make sure that the project aligns strategically with, with those, um, the worst case scenario to be in, especially as a new project manager is to be given a project that either your boss doesn't think is important or your boss's boss doesn't think is important or, you know, isn't actually clearly aligned with strategy of the organization. Cause then you're just, it just, I've been in that situation and it just feels like you're constantly rowing up river. Um, so really make sure that you, as much as you can pick projects that are, are aligned. The second is to be very clear upfront what the scope priority and scope and priority are. And then like we just discussed, do, do the work to really understand the risks and uncertainties. Because um, if, if, I think if you can get that clear picture up front, uh, you can then target your energy because so much about being a good project manager is knowing what to spend your time on. Uh, and I think initially really focusing and spending as much energy as you can on those items is super important. And then the final piece 
is, is, you know, you've, you've got to build a great team. Um, Cause if you do the, the first two items amazingly well, but the team can't execute, then you're kind of stuck as a project manager. So, you know, and think of it both, not only individuals that can deliver the business results you're looking for, but also, and almost equally, or maybe even more importantly, make sure that those people work the way you want to work. You know, make sure that that you will en- enjoy being around them, that they, they, the culture of, of how they treat people and and just make sure you, you think about both capability as well as uh, you know, how they interact with people and how they work. Because the worst thing that can happen with the team is you put this t- team together and you've got one person that's either very negative or you know, not aligned and you know, they can really, it's amazing how one person can, can do so much damage to productivity. So I think paying attention to those top three things is the, the key to, to get going strong. Well, congratulations on your recent promotion. So now you're a step above a project manager and are looking at portfolio of projects that your team is managing. Do you have specific methods to deploy your different resources or how are your individuals dedicated to projects? Are they cycled through or are they used in um, subject matter experts? Can you talk just a little bit about that portfolio and how you use your resources in your team? Sure. Microsoft has, has been going through this fundamental shift in almost all aspects of their business from you know, a company that was built on you know, writing software and shipping it on disks and CDs to you know, running and operating cloud services. Um, and engineers at Microsoft now today are, are expected to build, deploy, operate, and support our products. I mean, we are, we are offering these cloud services to companies and, you know, they expect them to work as, you know, 24 seven, you know, with great support and, and new functionality. Um, and so what we, the model that we've kind of moved to is we end up with one or more engineering managers that get assigned to a given service. Um, and, you know, those engineering managers have a very clear charter and ownership. It's like they, they are, you know, there's a very distinct, clear line between different services. Um, and they're able to then, you know, do that full life cycle, what, what internally Microsoft is calling DevOps, both develop, development and operations um, together. Um, for my team, we have, uh, we have a few internal services that manage the, the capabilities inside the company for privacy and uh, regulation compliance of, of private data and personal data. And then we also have some uh, external products that we're, we're building. And so the engineering managers end up being assigned to the various services. So I have uh, three engineering managers that are assigned to one uh, service and and a set of scenarios and products, and then a couple other engineering managers that are focused on different aspects of the the new capabilities that we're building. So they end up being very much uh, targeted to an external deliverable um, as far as charter and and, uh, ownership. Um, then 
as far as the individual funding, you know, how big should each team be and, you know, where should the engineers be, be placed? Um, the, a given engineering manager has uh, a set of people, a set of engineers that are really, the level of that funding is really geared toward, again, the product or service that they're managing. But the, the work on a month-to-month or an iterate, a sprint-to-sprint basis is a combination of work that is both servicing the existing products as well as thinking about new functionality. So we need to kind of fund both. We need to figure out, you know, how many people do we need to kind of keep things running and keep high support and, and service? And how many people can be allocated toward new development um, functionality? So that's kind of a first level planning that we do. And then as far as the, you know, what new work should we focus on? We, we have established uh, different pillars of scenarios and functionality that are aligned to different business metrics and different business outcomes. And we, we do, uh, you know, a kind of a simple budgeting exercise in the beginning of a planning cycle where we say, okay, how much do we want to spend in each of these pillars? And we do some, you know, based on different criteria, we make those decisions. Uh, and then we start looking at the backlogs of each of these pillars and we do a prioritization exercise to understand, okay, what is the most important investments we should be making in these different strategic pillars? And then based on that outcome, we understand, okay, what work streams do we need to fund on an iteration or sprint by sprint basis? And then the, then the final piece is, okay, well, how does a given engineer get assigned to these different work streams? And one of the, one of the aspects that I, that, we, that I talk a lot about with my engineering managers is that you know, growth and challenging work is you know, super important to, to an engineer's career, as well as retention and happiness and all these different factors that kind of go into managing people. Um, and so we try to you know, have, a, have a, a real open conversation with the engineers and we try to, you know, the, the perfect alignment is, I talk about that there's like three points of a triangle, right? There's the, there's the business. What does the business need us to get done? There's the project or the product. What does the product really need to get done? And then the person, what does the engineer need? What challenges and goals do they have? And when we can find a, a project that meets all three, then that's like the best of, of all worlds. And, and so we try hard to make sure that we are very transparent with the plan to all of the engineers and let them know, you know, this is what's happening. This is what's coming and then work with them to see where can we get maximum alignment and make sure that everybody feels like they're getting a challenging assignment that's helping them grow and helping them meet their career goals. I find it so fascinating because sometimes the company would just look at the business outcomes, but if you don't look at the people and stretching the people and keeping their ideas fresh and their learning fresh, then those people are going to go to a different company. And there's a lot of companies out there. So to keep that top talent, you need to have that triangle, not just a flat line. Exactly. We are seeing more and more of our students' companies move from a traditional waterfall management to the agile environment. I know that you've managed agile projects for a long time. 
How have you seen it successfully applied in deliverables realized? I mean, I guess the, I mean, my, my journey with Agile has been um, from the very beginning when I, when I was first reading about it and first learning about it, uh, I very much was under the assumption that, you know, you've, you've got to just basically follow the manual, right? It's like, read the book about Scrum or read the book about extreme programming or read the book about Kanban and like apply it and everything will be great, right? And early on, I remember going to a seminar um, in the Seattle area and it was uh, the guy who had written the extreme programming book. I can't remember his name offhand. Uh, and it was a, just kind of a, a room and we were just asking him questions. Um, and there was one person there and they were from, I won't say the company's name, but a very large security company that everybody knows. And they said, we, had, we were gonna build our new version of our product and we decided to follow your book. So we followed every letter of this book. And after a year, the project crashed and burned. It was a complete failure. And he talked about various aspects of, of what went wrong and how it went wrong. And the author looked at him and said, well, you obviously didn't do everything. You didn't apply the book correctly, right? So, so there's this belief, I think, in some parts of the Agile community that um, you know, this will just cure every ill. But the reality is that it won't. Um, and, in, and I think I would even go so strong to say, if you do attempt to just blindly apply you know, one of these approaches, you will probably fail. So instead, what I would recommend is, and I think this is true for every aspect, um, you know, eventually you'll go through the process improvement class. And I, I you know, you think about projects, it's, it's like in every aspect, I think small incremental improvements toward a goal are really the way to go. So what are some things that you can do very practically? I think um, instead, and this is almost like a broken record, but I mean, be very clear when you could go in about the scope and priority of what you're trying to accomplish. Because I think, again, that sets everything up for success. Then I think it's the next thing is to really think about how do you move to incrementally faster cycles? So maybe right now your, you know, your projects are six months long or whatever, you know, some classic waterfall, you know, the long projects. Convince your management to drop that in half. And, and, and it's not just dropping in half, but then say, well, the benefit is we'll get, be able to check in with the customer now half, in half the time and see what they think and make sure that we don't get all the way to the end and have it be wrong. So again, just think about moving to faster cycles. Um, and again, the, the, and I think the reason why we want to move to faster cycles is the the key insight, I think, across all of Agile is just the realization that, you know, no one can accurately predict the future. You know, unless you're working on a project that is exactly the same that you've done 10 times and you know exactly what's going to come and you've dealt with all of the potential, you know, things that could go wrong in the past. Um, if you're doing anything that is at all new or in a, even some projects uh, that could be in a new geography or a new place with different conditions. Um, you just really can't 
predict the future out more than, you know, weeks or months. So, uh, make sure you're, you're moving in these faster cycles and, uh, try to make, as you go forward, constant, but small adjustments to your trajectory. And I, and I think if you, if you adopt those two aspects of agile, you can layer on any type of methodology. Um, you know, if you like Kanban boards or if you like sprint boards, if you like story points, or if you like some other aspect of agile, I think you can kind of use whatever you, you feel like your organization can tolerate and, you know, as, and can, can embrace. But as long as you're reducing, you know, you're moving to faster cycle times and you're constantly checking in with the customer and making small adjustments, um, I think you'll, you'll get the most of the benefit of, of the agile methodologies. One term we've started used, using in our organization at the university is learn our way forward. And I think as you transition from sort of the geometric style of waterfall project management and move to an agile world, you need to learn. So it can't be A, then B, a completely separate process. It's not like um, implementing a new production line in a new facility. You need to learn how to do it and adjust. So that's some great insights. Before we finish, is there anything else that we've missed that you'd like to add for those who are listening to this podcast? Sure. I am not sure why, but I think way too much about the McGregor article that we read in EPD 710. And if you've forgotten about it, or if you kind of breezed over it, I would highly recommend you go back and reread it again. Um, I just really, really, I think it, I'm not sure if it's uh, hyperbole or whether it's actually true, uh, you know, accurate reflection of, of a reality, but regardless, I, I really love the point of view in that article that um, and maybe just a quick recap for those who don't remember it. It's there's a there's a, a man who is the leader of a of a plant, and the interviewer is is shocked because he's basically not involved in the decision making at the detail level. He's just spending his time thinking and and planning about the future. And he talks about how all of the his reports are completely self uh, self empowered, and 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 he he actively chooses not to, you know, make any decisions for his subordinates, you know, and kind of forces them to learn and grow. And I, and I think that, and I think that approach, uh, I'm trying it in small pieces and I'm just starting to see a lot of benefit. Uh, and I think it boils down to a couple of key things. One is, you know, really think deeply about your role in the organization. Um, and, in any, in any role, either, you know, you're a project manager or a manager or a manager manager or whatever you're, you know, you're where you're at now and where you're going in those roles, you'll find that there are, you know, distinct problems that you're able to solve um, either through your, your ability or your position in the organization. Um, and especially when you, when you make the first transition to manager, uh, the number one thing that trips people up is they is they keep doing the job they were doing, but they start managing people, and then that just leads to bad, you know, micromanagement and lack of empowerment, and people getting upset. But and so instead, think about, you know, now you're a manager or now you're a project manager. What 
problems can you distinctly tackle? Um, and then I think that the correlate to that is actively avoid solving the problems that others have been hired or, or are equipped to solve. Um, I think that that really gives you as a, as a person in a new role or even an existing role, I think that gives you the space to be challenged and to grow because you're not dipping your hands down into the details of what you used to do, but you're trying to kind of reach up to, you know, the new things that you could be doing. And I think it also empowers people um, at their level to, to really be challenged and grow. Um, so I think I, that, I, I don't know why, I just find myself going back and reading that probably every few months uh, and getting something new out of it. But I, I just think that that frame is like super important, um, especially as you go through your career and, and you kind of uh, grow into different roles. Um, finding that place where you can add unique value is, is super important. Well, Craig, this has been such an interesting session and we want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening to ePod. For more episodes, visit interpro.wis.edu slash podcast. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share.